All right, folks, let's open up in our Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Our text this morning is verses 12 to 16, and I'm going to call this message Pressing On. Pressing On. This, this message is all about the Christian life, what the Christian life is supposed to be like. And it's pretty autobiographical. The Apostle Paul talks about himself, but we can apply it to our, our own lives too. Let's just read the text first, and then we'll, we'll stop and ask God's help. Philippians 3, verse 12. Not that I have already obtained it, or have already become perfect, but I press on, so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. Father, I pray that you'd throw light upon this ancient text of the Apostle Paul to the Philippians. Lord, let us make apt application to our own lives today. I pray that the Holy Spirit would bring us under conviction in areas that we are lacking and that he would motivate and inspire us to greater works in Christ Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we need to go back a couple weeks in our last study. We are taking a look at Philippians 3, 8 through 11. And the topic that we were looking at is the excellency of knowing Christ. That's Paul's topic in verses 8 through 11. And we saw that knowing Christ is precious, pardoning, powerful, painful, and progressive. The five Ps, <laughs> so that you can remember them. Knowing Christ is precious because Paul says that it's of surpassing value in verse 8. It's of surpassing value. There's nothing more precious than having an intimate saving relationship to Christ. It's also pardoning because in verse 9 he says that when we know Christ we receive a righteousness from God which comes to us on the basis of faith not law keeping. It's also powerful because he says in verse 10 that I may know him in the power of his resurrection. And as Christians, we experience the power of Christ's resurrection the moment we're born again. Because God takes us who are dead in sins and he makes us alive together with Christ. That takes the power of Jesus' resurrection to do that. But it doesn't stop there. It continues throughout our whole Christian life when we are given the power to endure trials or serve the saints or witness to the lost or rejoice without ceasing, or all of the New Testament commands, when you experience a power greater than your own, that's the power of Christ's resurrection working in your life. And knowing Christ is also painful, because he talks about the fellowship of his sufferings. Jesus suffered, didn't he? Jesus suffered persecution. He was maligned by others. And a faithful believer at times is going to face some persecution. Now here in America it's not too bad, at least yet. But in other parts of the world it can be very difficult. It can, it can mean your, your life is taken from you if you're a faithful follower of Christ. And not only that, but he goes on to say 
being conformed to his death. So Paul wanted the fellowship of Christ's sufferings and he wanted to be conformed to Christ's death. And what I think he means by that is that Paul wanted to be conformed to the death of Christ in the sense that Jesus was willing to die rather than to pursue his own will. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, um, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. So Paul was being conformed to Christ's death. Paul was being willing to drink the cup of the wrath of God, face the sufferings for our sin, rather than disobey his Father. And so when we become Christians, we also must take the same approach that Jesus did, and we have to submit our will to the will of God, even when it's painful, and even when our flesh does not want to do that particular thing. Becoming a Christian means learning to submit our will to God's will. So, knowing Christ sometimes is painful. And then also knowing Christ is progressive. Because he says at the very end here in verse 11, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. So, knowing Christ is like being on a path. And as you know Christ, you walk this path and it goes someplace. It progresses somewhere. It ends up with being raised from the dead to be with him forever in glory. So knowing Christ, that's Paul's train of thought. But something Paul had just said at the end of verse 11 triggers him. He doesn't want to be misunderstood. And what he had said is, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. And he knows that someone might misunderstand him to be saying that he has reached the place of perfection that those who are raised from the dead eventually reach. And so he, he begins to say, no, 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 that's not what I mean. I'm not talking about that. That takes him on this whole new train of thought. But what he, what he wants to talk about in verses 12 to 16 is this idea of pressing on in the Christian life. He mentions it twice, verse 12 and verse 14. And he mentions three aspects of pressing on in the Christian life. And I want to talk to you about those three aspects. So just to give you an outline, we're going to talk about Paul's sanctified dissatisfaction in the Christian life. And I'll try to help you understand what I mean by that. And then his single determination, this one thing I do. And then thirdly, his supreme desire. We find that in verse 14. He's going to press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Okay, so let's go back to number one. Paul's sanctified dissatisfaction. Look at verse 12. Three times Paul tells us that He's dissatisfied with where he is at spiritually. He says in verse 12, not that I have already obtained it. And then in verse 12 again, not that I've already become perfect. And then verse 13, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. So three times, hey, I haven't done this, I haven't done that, and I haven't done the other thing. I want to do those things, I'm striving to do those things, but they're not true yet in my life. And so what Paul is saying is, I haven't arrived yet. If you're looking at me as the epitome of perfection in the Christian life, you're going to have to look somewhere else, because that's not me. I haven't yet arrived. I haven't reached my goal. Now let's just break it down and look at some of the phrases that Paul uses here. He says in verse 12, not that I've already obtained it. Well, what is the it that he hadn't obtained? Not that I have already obtained it. Well, go back to verse 11, the, pre, the immediately preceding verse. 
He says, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead, not that I've already obtained it. Well, he must be talking about obtaining the status that comes along with being raised from the dead. Of course, we know that he hasn't been raised from the dead. Anyone can see that. But, but when someone is raised from the dead, they are perfected. And that's why he goes on to say, or have already become perfect. Because some, when someone is raised by Christ from the dead, they attain a status of moral perfection, uh, conformity to Christ. They no longer sin. They're, they're perfected in their sanctification at that point. And Paul is telling us he hasn't reached spiritual perfection. He hasn't arrived at moral perfection. His war with sin one day when he's raised from the dead is going to be over. And he's going to be like Christ and he's never going to sin again. But that hasn't happened to him yet. Um, I don't know if you're aware of it, but there is a doctrine that has been taught for hundreds of years. John Wesley was the one, I believe, that originated the doctrine. And he called it perfectionism. And it was the idea that there can come a point of time in your life when you, through faith, receive entire sanctification. Anybody aware of this doctrine? It's not something that people really talk about much anymore. And only a few denominations still hold to it. But the idea is that through faith you experience sort of this crisis point in your life when God then sanctifies you entirely. And they will even, some of the old timers that believe this will say that they don't sin. From that point on they never sin again. But they define sin as consciously choosing to transgress something that God has commanded. So they say after you reach entire sanctification you have been perfected in the Christian life. I, I, I believe that's an error because Paul said that he had never reached that point in his life. He had never become perfect. So who are we to say that we're further along the spiritual life than the Apostle Paul? And Paul said that after he'd been living for Christ 25 or 30 years. This wasn't his first year walking with the Lord. He'd been walking with the Lord for two and a half decades at least at this point. And then he goes on to say, I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Now that's kind of a mouthful. What is he talking about? He says, that I may lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Um, what was it that Christ laid hold of, of Paul for? I want to lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Jesus Christ. Why did Christ lay hold of Paul? Well, let's take a look at some, some scripture that will help us here. Ephesians 1, verse 4. Paul's writing. I'm just going to jump into the middle of his sentence. Verse 4. Paul says, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Why? That we would be holy and blameless before him. That's the reason why God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. He wants us to be holy and blameless before him. That's why Christ laid hold of Paul. Christ wanted to make Paul holy and blameless before him. And that's not the only place where Paul tells us that is God's goal and why he saves us. Over in Ephesians 5 when he's talking about husbands and wives, um, he addresses this to the husbands. This is Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives. 
just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Now let's break it down. Why did Christ love the church and give himself up for the church? Well, Paul gives us four reasons. Number one, so that he might sanctify her. That means make her holy. Two, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory. He wants a glorious church, and he's going to have a glorious church. Number three, that she would have no spot or wrinkle or any such thing. In other words, a blemish, something that would mar her beauty. He's going to erase every defect from the church. Four, but that she would be holy and blameless. Now here we have the same thing said in the book of Ephesians twice. Chapter 1, chapter 5. Both times, Paul says God's goal is that we would be holy and blameless. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless. And Christ loved us and died for us so that we would be holy and blameless. That's why Jesus Christ laid hold of Paul. And if you're a Christian, that's why he laid hold of you. He has a goal for you. He wants you to be holy and blameless before Him. And that's what we're going to experience at the resurrection of the dead. We are going to be holy and blameless in every aspect before the Lord. And that's what I, I believe that's what Paul means here when he talks about being perfect. What about Romans 8.29? Think back with me to this passage. For those whom God foreknew... He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. So why did God predestine, or what did God predestine His people for? To be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That's God's ultimate goal for His people. He wants us to be holy and blameless. So God's goal for every Christian is to make them just like His Son. He starts that work when we are converted to Christ. He continues that work through our entire life. And he finishes that work when he receives us into his presence. And we're entirely sanctified. But what I want you to notice here is that Paul was not satisfied with where he was at spiritually. There's a sanctified dissatisfaction with where he was. He always wanted more. He wanted to be closer to God. He wanted to root more sin out of his life. He wanted to be more holy. He wanted to have more love for the brethren and more love for the lost. He saw that there was whole vistas of areas of spiritual growth that he could continue moving down towards. And I think there's a lesson there for us. We ought not become so content with where we're at spiritually that we're no longer pressing on. We're no longer pressing forward. God wants, for the rest of our lives, you can be 99 years old and God wants you to press on. He wants you to make progress in your Christian life. So I wonder about you and I. Do we have a sanctified dissatisfaction with our spiritual lives? Do you? Do you want to grow? Do you want to change? Do you see areas of your life where you're not like Christ and you want to put those out of your life? Do you want more love for God? More zeal for God? More love for people that are lost and perishing and going to end up in hell? Do you, do you love them? Do you want more love for them? Do you, do you want more deadness to the world? 
All those things are beautiful things. And those are things that we should, we should prize. That's the direction we ought to be headed towards. So, I think it is true that we should be content regarding our outward state, but we should not be content regarding our inward spiritual state. For the rest of our life, there's going to be a dissatisfaction or a discontent with where we're at because we're never going to arrive at perfection this side of glory. So I want to encourage you and challenge you this morning. So let's determine together as a church that in 2022, we're not going to slow down or stand still or slide backwards when it comes to our Christian life, especially just standing still. We're not going to do that. We're going to move forward. We're going to seek to be sanctified and to become holy. We're going to ask the Lord to show us the sin in our life and to root it out of us and give us grace to kill that sin in our lives. In Jesus' name. So that's the first aspect of Paul's Christian life. Second one, I want to show you his single determination. He says in verse, where is it? 13. He says, Brethren, I don't regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do. One thing I do. Well, what does he do? He forgets what lies behind. He reaches forward to what lies ahead. And he presses on toward the goal for the prize. One thing I do, I press on toward the goal for the prize. But this tells us a lot about the Apostle Paul. Let me go back up just a minute because I, I need to help you understand what he means by when he talks about pressing on. That word, that verb for pressing on, um, he uses it in verse 12. I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. He uses it in verse 14. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And that verb for press on can mean pursue or chase after. In fact, if you go back to Philippians 3, 6, Paul says, as to zeal, I'm a pure... I was a persecutor of the church. That word persecutor is the Greek noun form of this word here for press on. Press on is a verb, persecutor is a noun, but they, they share the same Greek root. So to persecute someone is to chase after someone. In fact, um, sometimes this word was used of a hunter chasing down his prey to catch his prey. The verb Pressing on, uh, that verb is found 42 times in the New Testament, and 30 of those times it's translated as persecute. So when someone's persecuting someone else, they're chasing them down in order to harm them. Now, Paul said, I once chased down the church in order to harm them. Now I'm chasing down Christ, not to harm him, but because I want to be more like him. That's what he means by pressing on towards the goal for the prize. And then he says in verse 12, to lay hold of. Now let's think about, about that expression, to lay hold of. Uh, the, the real root behind this word is that it's talking about arresting. It's like a, a policeman who chases down a criminal and they capture them and they handcuff them. They've arrested them, now they take them to jail. That's the idea behind to lay hold of. Paul says that Jesus Christ arrested him, apprehended him 
laid hold of him. Basically what he did is Christ stopped him in his tracks. Remember, Paul was on the, his way, he was on the road to Damascus to arrest Christians and haul them off and bring them to Jerusalem to put them in prison. And Jesus Christ stopped him in his tracks and turned him around and pointed him in a whole other direction. He was like a policeman who arrested Paul the criminal and took him captive. So, the Apostle Paul is saying that he wants to lay hold of, or he wants to grab a hold of and arrest holiness in the same way that Jesus Christ laid hold of and arrested him. But he says, one thing I do, and, and you know that reveals a lot about Paul. Paul was a man who had, with a laser focus, he had narrowed down all of the different things of life to one essential driving thing. And that one thing that everything had been boiled down to in his life was to press on for Christ and holiness. I remember when I was a kid, every summer we would go up to the state of Washington because both of my parents had family members that lived up there. So we'd go visit grandma and grandpa and all our aunts and uncles and cousins. And one of the fun things we would do at my grandma's house was she had this big magnifying glass and she would let us take that magnifying glass and we'd, we'd find the sun, and the sun would go through this magnifying glass, and then it would, it would go to this board. And at first, when we're pointing the magnifying glass at the board, there'd be a big circle of light. But by adjusting where that magnifying glass was, you could make it littler and littler and smaller and smaller until it's just a little dot. And when you did that, you just hold it there for a few seconds, the board starts smoking. Because all of the heat that's in that sun is now focused and intensified on one single point. And what we would love to do, we'd, we'd write our initials on this board with that magnifying glass. But that's the idea I get when Paul says, one thing I do. He had taken all of the options for his life and he'd narrowed them all down through the magnifying glass and he'd pointed them at this one thing. One thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize. In other words, Paul was intent about his Christian life and pressing on to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see how important it was for Paul to achieve holiness in his life? To put sin to death and to bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit. That's really what holiness is. Can you say the same thing that Paul did? Can you say one thing I do? Have you taken all of the things that you could be doing in life and have you take the magnifying glass of God's word and, and you say, okay, the one thing that I need to do is my life needs to be about pursuing Jesus Christ and to be made like him. If you're, if you're doing that, you're following a good example. You're following the, the life of the Apostle Paul. The secret of spiritual progress is to concentrate on one thing. If we're scattered in 10 million different directions, we're not going to have very much success with anything. But if we can focus our lives on pressing on towards Christ and holiness, we're going to, we're going to find a, a measure of success in that. He says, forgetting what lies behind. Now here he's using the imagery of a, a race, a guy in a race. He's running a race, but he says, he, I'm pressing on, I'm chasing, I'm running after, but I'm forgetting what lies behind. What happens to an athlete when he's running 
and he turns around and looks behind him while he's running. He's down, isn't he? He's going to trip and fall. And that's what happens to us when we are constantly looking back. Paul says he forgets what lies behind. And he's not talking about that he's failing to remember things in his past. Of course Paul could remember what happened in his past. He's not talking about, you know, I've got amnesia. Now I can't remember anything that used to happen in my past life. He's talking about, I refuse to be affected by my past. In that sense, I'm forgetting what lies behind me. Now, just what should we forget in our Christian life? Well, let me give you some thoughts here. I think we should forget about our failures. Refuse to let your failures affect your present Christian life. It's easy to get paralyzed if you've committed some, some bad sin in your life and you've really failed the Lord, like, like Peter did when he denied the Lord three times. Don't you know that that could really paralyze him? The Lord set him free and restored him, but... Have you ever done something in your life, even after you became a Christian, that you're just really shameful about? Embarrassed, you're ashamed of, it's a skeleton in your closet. Well, if you are constantly looking back on that thing, that's not, not going to help you to make progress in your Christian life. You need to refuse to let that affect you in the present, because you're not living in the past anymore. That's not you any longer. You're living, you're living for Christ today. There's nothing we can do to change that. So it does no good to dwell on it. Dwelling on it isn't going to change it. And it's not going to help us today. It's also not helpful for us to remember the sins of others and how the sins of others have hurt us. Right? So maybe somebody sinned against you at some point And they hurt you. Maybe they abused you. Maybe they wounded you in some way and it's hard for you to live in the present without having this constant feeling of bitterness and unforgiveness in your heart. You need to let that go. Refuse to live in the past. Yes, sir, Scott. I got a quick question. Okay. The guy that ran me over. And you'll learn the language. But I'm mad as hell at him. Yeah. And it was like 18 years ago. Yeah. And if I... I totaled the car, but if the guy that hit me and I were face to face, I'd punch him out. Okay. I'd left hand punch him out because I'm that angry at him. Yeah. And that will never go away because that guy took my life from me. Uh-huh. Well, you know what, Scott? I know that's exactly how you feel and I believe you're telling me the truth. But it is possible. It is possible once a person has come to know the Lord Jesus to be able to let some of those things go, even something as bad as that. It's, it's supernatural. It's not a natural thing. But I, I do believe God could enable you by His grace and His power to be able to release that and not to feel those feelings of bitterness in your heart. I know. I know, you, I know you will. I know you do doubt that. But I believe it's entirely possible. It's on a whole different level than, than what you're thinking about right now. But I understand. I understand. So the sins of others can affect our present Christian life. But it's not just our failures. I think Paul would also say it's my successes too. I'm not constantly looking back at the good old days where I was really walking with the Lord. Where I was really on fire for Christ. 
you know, as though sometime in my past I was really doing well and I'm not doing well now. So I'll just look back on the good old days and kind of rejoice in what happened back then. Well, if you do that, what's going to happen? You become complacent. You, you think, well, I did it once. I guess that's good enough. Well, no, 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 it's not. God wants you closer to him today than you've ever been in your whole Christian life. And making continual progress from glory to glory is the idea. So, failures and successes. And then he says, reaching forward to what lies ahead. The idea behind that is stretching forward or straining forward like an athlete does. You, you've watched the Olympics, right? And they're, they're going neck and neck towards the, uh, the tape. And the guys go like this. They stretch their chest out. Some of them even dive at the tape because they want to hit that, that tape before the other guy does. That's the idea here. Stretching forward or straining forward. You're like an athlete in a race who is straining every muscle and every nerve to reach that goal line. So Paul had a single determination that he was going to snap the tape. That he was going to be accepted by God on the final judgment day. So we need to ask ourselves, do I have that same single determination like Paul? How badly do I want to be like Christ? I think something that Mark said last week was helpful. He said, you know, we can have as much of God as we want to. It's shameful that we don't want more of God, you know, that we really want all these other things in our life. But hey, you can have as much of God as you want. Well, let's go on. Let's look at the, three, the third aspect of Paul's pressing on in the Christian life. His supreme desire. And that's in 14. He says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The goal. What's Paul talking about when he said he's pressing on toward the goal? I think he's talking about the goal line, the tape, finishing the race. Like he says in 2 Timothy 4, 7, he's about to die. He says, the time of my departure has come. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the course. There's the idea. I've finished the course. I've kept the faith. So each one of us has a course to run. Our life is like a course. And we don't all have to run the very same course. God's got a different plan and purpose for every one of us. But he does have a course for you, a race course. And Paul says, I'm pressing on, I'm straining every nerve because I want to reach the goal that the Lord has set for me. Basically, he's, he's saying, I think, I want to hear God say to me, well done, my good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord. I press on toward the goal for the prize. What prize is there? At every, any race, there's a prize, isn't there? If you win, there's a big trophy or a laurel wreath or some kind of a prize. Maybe it's a brand new car. <laughs> Who knows? There's a prize for the, being the winner of the race. The prize for the, being the winner of this race is the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. In other words, maybe this would express it best. In Matthew 25, Jesus said when the king comes in his glory, he's going to see his uh, sheep on his right, and he's going to say to them, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. There's the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, being called into his eternal fellowship and into his presence and glory. He's talking about being resurrected, 
attaining to sinless perfection, seeing Christ face to face, worshiping and serving Him forever in the new heavens and the new earth. All of that is, I think, included in the prize that we receive for faithfully serving the Lord Jesus. He even brings it out in this very same chapter. So in Philippians 3.20, Paul writes, Our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. So here part of the idea of the prize of the upward call of God is that our body is actually transformed to be like the body of Jesus after He was resurrected from the dead. It's all part of this glorious prize that the church receives. Now, let's just break down some concluding application thoughts from this whole passage. And I want to get a couple of them from verse 15 and 16. Uh, the first one, pressing on is the duty of every single Christian. And we know that because in verse 15, Paul says, Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. Now when he says, as many as are perfect, he doesn't mean morally perfect, because he's already said that even he is not morally perfect. He's talking about being complete. Um, he's talking about being mature. He can use the word perfect in two different ways. He can use it as that perfection that we arrive when we're raised from the dead, back in verse 12, but he can also use it in the sense of being mature or complete. And I think that's what he must be saying here in verse 15, because nobody was morally perfect except for Jesus, right? So let us therefore, as many as are spiritually mature and complete, have this attitude. So if you're spiritually mature, you will adopt the same attitude that Paul had, which was to press on in his Christian life and to, make, to gain new heights of ground in your relationship with Christ. Not to become stagnant or face the status quo, but to be pressing on. That's a mark of spiritual maturity. And he says, if you have a different attitude than this, well, he doesn't actually come out and say it, but what he's really implying is that you're spiritually immature if you have a different attitude. Um, well, that's okay because God's going to reveal that also to you. God will set you straight. He'll reveal to you the truth. I'm not worried about it, you know. So whether you are spiritually mature or spiritually immature, every Christian has the same duty, and that's to press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God. So, personal holiness is not just for the spiritually elite. It's not just for apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, missionaries. It's not just for the Rambos, spiritual Rambos, you know, the, the super spiritual Marines, the, the people that are cut above everybody else. It's for every single Christian. God wants you, no matter who you are today, if you have embraced Jesus Christ, to press on in your Christian life in 2022. The second application I see here is that pressing on is the remedy against backsliding. Because he says in verse 16, However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. 
In other words, don't slip backwards. You've arrived at a certain standard in your Christian life? Well, at least keep living at that same standard to which you have attained. Don't start slipping back. Don't go back into the world and start embracing sin that you once got victory over. Don't do that. We call that backsliding. Don't backslide. Keep living at that same standard and press on even further. So, if we want to not backslide in our relationship to Christ, we need to embrace Paul's his, his directives here, which are to press on in our Christian life. Don't give any hard-earned ground back to the devil. Don't give him any place. Make holiness of life our daily aim and seek it with all our might. And then number three, pressing on involves both faith and action. And this is where we come full circle and we come back to Exodus 17. Remember the story of the Amalekites? Moses is up on the hill holding the staff of God, representing faith in God and God's power to give them the deliverance. But we've also got a Joshua down on the battlefield with the sword and the spear in his hand doing battle against the enemy. And we need to be both like, like Moses and like Joshua. Remember Mark made that same point last week. It's not, we can get the idea that, hey, if I'm ever going to make any progress, it's all up to me. It's not true. It's not all up to you. Yes, God wants you to make decisions of your will in regards to holiness, but the Lord is working in your life. Notice how Paul puts it. Okay, verse 12. He says, I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. One thing I do. Those are all things that point to Paul's activity, right? He's the one pressing on. This is the one thing he does. He forgets what lies behind. He reaches forward to what lies ahead. So it points to action. It's like Joshua on the battlefield. But there's also a side in here where we see God's activity. And we see Moses on the hill looking to God to give deliverance. Where do we see that? Well, we see that in Jesus Christ laying hold of Paul. That's God's activity. And we also see it in God extending an upward call in Christ Jesus. So those are things God does. When it comes to sanctification, God has a role to play, and we have a role to play, and we don't fixate on our role to the exclusion of God's role, nor do we abandon our role and just look to what God does. Both of those things go together in the Christian life. It's not all passive, and it's not all active. There is a matter of depending on God, putting our faith in Christ, trusting Him, and there's also the matter of setting your alarm clock so that you get up and have time with the Lord before you start your day. Personal discipline is part of all that. Taking a sin in your own life and taking action to put that sin to death. That's Joshua on the battlefield with the spear in his hand, thrusting it into the heart of an Amalekite. Both of those things are true. They go together in our sanctification. So, brothers and sisters, I just want to exhort you this morning to make up your mind that you're not going to become laissez-faire, you know, complacent, apathetic,
just kind of going through the motions of your Christian life. If you're feeling like you're there today, I, I want to urge you to repent of that attitude because it's not honoring to God. It's not what God wants for us. He wants us to have an aggressive approach to our Christian life. He wants you to press on, to pursue, to chase after Christ and His likeness. So may God help us. That, it really boils down to that. May God help us to press on like Paul pressed on. To find in His example God's will for every one of us. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, right now I feel like Moses on the hill lifting up the staff because without you, I, I'm not going to be able to make progress. Lord, I need you. We all need you. We can't do this. Without you, we can do nothing. And my flesh dwells no good thing. And so we, we, we look right now in prayer and we trust, Lord, that you would stir up our hearts Inspire and motivate us, Lord, for greater victories over sin and greater fruitfulness, that we would bear more of the fruit of the Holy Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, forbearance, self-control, and all the rest. Lord, produce those fruits. Make us fruitful for the Lord Jesus. Increase our love for the brethren and love for lost people. Do what we can't do, Lord. But I pray that we would not, we would, we would never make excuses for why we do nothing and sit down and just wait. Lord, help us to be active like Joshua as well. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.